Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a spoiler special for Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Now, if you're not familiar with it, the spoiler special is a feature wherein we get to talk about a movie in ways that a reviewer doesn't get to talk about a movie. In other words, we get to ruin it. Everything in the movie is fair game for discussion here, including the plot twists, the happy ending, the unhappy ending, whatever. So if you haven't seen Talladega Nights and you're planning to, wait till you've seen it before you listen to this. So I'm here in New York, and joining me from Washington, D.C. are Josh Levine, Slate sports editor and a self-proclaimed movie buff, and Seth Stevenson, a frequent Slate contributor. So, um, guys, we all saw Talladega Nights. Give me a general um, overview. What did you think of it? I think that Seth and I both thought, you know, as you say in your review, it's sort of played out like a, a long sketch comedy show where some of the jokes work really well and are, you know, unbelievably funny. Some of them are really tired and, and hackneyed, but I think it came out about as well as you could expect. And if you've seen Anchorman, it is much the same sort of feel and, and vibe to it. I was hoping for more of a 40-year-old virgin kind of movie. But, you know, I think if you're an Anchorman fan, then you'd probably really like this movie. What do you see in the 40-year-old virgin that you like more than, than what you saw here? I mean, it's the same sort of ensemble and a little bit of the same feeling, I think. 40-Year-Old Virgin had some, a few realistic interactions between the characters. You know, some of the characters were felt like human beings, whereas in Anchorman and, and Ricky Bobby, none of the characters actually feel like human beings. None of the characters interact with each other in ways that we are familiar with as human beings. It's all pure comedy. Um, that's the big difference. What, what I like about both Ricky Bobby and Anchorman is that not all the jokes feel focus groups. They don't all feel like they're pitched to the lowest common denominator. A lot of the humor is very clearly the humor of Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, the director. It, it, you can tell that it's got a very distinct feel, and the jokes are just, you know, from Mars. They're, 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 the punchlines are things you'd never think of. They're things that obviously these guys find hilarious, and they're hoping you'll find hilarious, rather than pitching it to sort of middle America and, and dumbing everything down and making the punchlines all totally familiar and routine. I agree with that in some sense and that, you know, you have that long scene where Will Ferrell and the John C. Riley character are talking about the different ways that they envision Jesus when they're saying grace. Like Ricky Bobby really likes to think of the baby Jesus from Christmas time. And then they also talk about, you know, ninja Jesus and all this other really weird stuff. Then you also have jokes like Ricky Bobby runs around in his underwear on the track, think he's on fire, and he does it twice. Not only does he do it twice in this movie, Will Ferrell did that in old school already. So there are a lot of things that feel sort of old and tired along with the really original jokes. Yeah, there seem to be long slack times in between these these very high points of improvisation. I think one of the most from Mars jokes and one of the funniest is some kind of crazy riff that Sasha Baron Cohen goes on about what he and his lover, Andy Richter, want to do when they retire. Do you remember that scene saying, like, we yeah. want to retire to Stockholm and design currency to be used by animals or something like <laughs> yes, that? He, he proceeds that by saying, we just want to do what everyone else wants to do. <laughs> <laughs> design a currency for dogs and cats to use. As long as we're talking about um, Gregory, the Andy Richter character, and, and Sasha Baron Cohen's character, uh, Jean, Jean Richard, what's his name? Jean Girard? Jean Girard. What did you guys make of the, uh, the gay angle in this movie and the, you know, we can give it away here, the climactic kiss between Will Ferrell and, and Sasha Baron Cohen that ends the movie? Well, in the middle of the movie, Jean Girard tells Ricky Bobby that if he gives him a kiss on the lips, he will go back to France, and Ricky Bobby refuses. But then at the end of the movie, once Ricky Bobby beats him in a sort of bizarre final race that we can go into later. 
he does actually give him a huge kiss on the lips. I I was pleasantly surprised by how they handled that. They, you know, when Jean Girard first says he's he's gay when he shows up in the bar where they're playing pool and he says he's gay, there's there's sort of a moment of, of shock and dismay. But after that, there's no uh, negativity connected with, with being gay anywhere in the movie. Kids are wearing Jean Girard jackets and everyone's a big Jean Girard fan and it seems not to matter at all to all the NASCAR fans that he's gay, which of course is absolutely ridiculous. In the real world, you know, uh, people call Jeff Gordon gay, even though he's not gay. <laughs> but there's, in, in fact, in the real world of NASCAR fans, you know, being gay is the, absolutely the worst thing possible. And an openly gay driver couldn't possibly ever happen. And in the world of sports, in a larger sense, there are just not that many images that you can see of a gay person being portrayed as being good at sports. And while they show, you know, Jean Girard being effeminate or drinking macchiato, in his car. He's also just seen as being like a really kick-ass driver and everybody thinks that. And you know, I th- thought of in baseball, Mike Piazza a couple years ago had a press conference where he just announced that he wasn't gay because there were rumors <laughs> going around that he was gay. And so he he thought that for some reason he had to, you know, come out and refute this. So this was sort of bizarrely a, a breath of fresh air for me. It's true, and you feel that there's going to be sort of a homophobic vibe in the in the air at the beginning of the movie when Gerard walks into the pool hall and announces, you know, his his gayness. And I think there's a line where um, Will Ferrell is passing out, and his last words before fainting are, "My head is spinning from the gayness." But then it's almost as if throughout the course of the movie, along with all the lessons about courage and fearlessness, and um, you know, dreaming big dreams that he learns, he sort of learns not to be homophobic too. Although there's never a real moment that you see him learn that lesson, right? And by the end of the movie, the kiss seems seems like a big affirmation, you know, of the the rivalry between the two men is sort of pleasantly homoerotic, you know? Yeah, no, it's just it's just no big deal. I'd also like to point out that Andy Richter is hilarious as Jean Girard's lover, although sort of criminally underused, but he's terrific in that role. Well, I was trying to remember, at, at the end of the, at the big foot race and the climax of the movie, we never get to say goodbye to Andy Richter's character, Gregory, the German Shepherd trainer, right? He never appears. There's not a shot of his face reacting to the final kiss, which you'd think he might be steamed about, or to the foot race or anything. So you guys are more or less um, a large component of Slate's sports team. Um, Seth writes a lot about sports, and Josh is the sports editor. So you're obviously both bigger um, stock car racing fans than I am. And I, could you talk about the movie a little bit from from that angle, the portrait of NASCAR and NASCAR culture that comes across in the movie, and whether that surprised you? Well, one thing that I think surprised us was, you know, in sports movies in general, if you set a movie in the world of professional sports, one way to get cred is by having the athletes from that sport appear alongside the actors. But in this movie, there are no real drivers. You know, Dale Earnhardt Jr. comes in for two seconds, but, you know, on the track, it's Ricky Bobby versus Jean Girard. It's not Ricky Bobby versus Jean Girard and Tony Stewart and Jeff Gordon. If you're an actual NASCAR fan and you go to this movie expecting there to be some NASCAR in-jokes, you'll you'll be terribly disappointed. There really aren't any, and there's really very little attempt made to make it true to NASCAR. The, the one thing they do is they, they, they talk about the slingshot pass, which is, which is an actual phenomenon in NASCAR. But there's, there's not a lot of other, you know, in most sports movies that sort of enter the world of different sport, they try to drop all these catchphrases and they try to have all the stars of the sport. And the, but there's, that just isn't here at all in this. Um, I, one thing I was wondering is whether they could have done this movie, which is a PG-13 family-friendly comedy, um, back when NASCAR was Winston Cup. I, I remember I, 
I, I've covered a couple of NASCAR races as a journalist, and when you go to a NASCAR race, and, when, and whenever you go to any sort of event as a journalist, there's a journalist room where they give you sort of free food and the press releases. At the NASCAR journalist tent, not only do they give you free food and press releases, they also give you free packs of cigarettes and free tins of <laughs> skull, which all the journalists then take with them and smoke and chew during the race. Um, NASCAR has been associated with tobacco, and I'm not sure they could have done this movie before um, it switched to becoming the Nextel Cup. In terms of product placement, what about the uh, the blatant commercialism for Applebee's that occurs throughout the movie? Did that bother you guys, or did you take it tongue-in-cheek? I mean, there's an entire commercial for Applebee's that airs in the middle of a race. The joke, of course, being that the crash that's going on is so extensive that there's time for a commercial, and the cars are still crashing when you cut back from the commercial. But what about the Applebee's product placement? Well, not, not being privy to the uh, negotiations over Applebee's corporate image being used in the movie. I'm not sure. It was sort of a mixed bag for Applebee's because, you know, they it is held up as as a joke in itself where Will Ferrell says something like, let's go to a fantastic restaurant and then we, we smash cut to a picture of an Applebee's and everyone's supposed to laugh at that. But then there's just, you know, so much Applebee's in the movie that that's a lot of airtime and that has to be good for them. I'm, I'm not sure if I were the Applebee's CEO how I'd feel. I, I guess on the whole, I, I, I would like the portrayal of Applebee's, but uh, I'm not, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure how the negotiations went on that. Right. I mean, I guess I would take it more as a kind of a good-natured rib at, at Middle America than necessarily a specific dig at, you know, working-class culture or something. I mean, Will Ferrell movies in general tend to be so sort of good-natured and sweet-spirited that it's hard to imagine any group, whether it's gays or NASCAR fans or Applebee's fans or anyone, getting terribly offended at this picture. You could argue that the product placement in the movie is a commentary on the extraordinary product placement in NASCAR, which is probably the most advertised upon commercialized sport or enterprise in America. And this movie is just slathered with product placements. You know, when they're saying grace, they say grace with Powerade because it's sponsored by some special flavor of Powerade. And, you know, there's KFC, Pizza Hut, any product you can think of. And that joke was, you know, ever since Wayne's World did that joke where they, they on product placement, where they said, I think I'll have some delicious Domino's pizza and so forth. That that joke is dead. No one can make that joke again. But the one way you can revive it is here in the world of NASCAR, like you were saying, where product placement is so crazy. Um, but they didn't make it that funny, I didn't think. There was tons of product placement, um, and there was sort of, you know, a gag about how at the end he doesn't have any sponsors, so he just writes me on, on his shirt, and that's his, you know, he's, that's who's behind him is me, is himself. Um, but they could have done, they could have been a little more over the top and imagined some ridiculous sponsorship scenarios. Yeah, the best we got there is Laughing Clown Malt Liquor, which is kind of weak. I did sort of like when he slapped the Fig Newton sticker right in the middle of his car windshield and said something like, this sticker endangers my life, yet I love Fig Newtons. <laughs> yes, that was funny. That was the one time they did they did go over the top of the product placement, and it was funny. You're right. I neglected to think of that. That was quite funny. Also, did you notice when he put the me along with the cougar, everyone who's seen the movie will know <laughs> what I'm talking about when I mention the cougar, he has the me and the cougar on the hood of the car to signify that you know he's just racing for himself, and it's this whole self-actualization you know, gobbledygook. But then on the side of the car, there's still, still plastered with still logos. Absolutely. <laughs> well, do we think that, have we come to the end of this run of Will Ferrell movies where we just sort of plop Will Ferrell down into some new world and it's funny because it's Will Ferrell? Isn't he starring in this movie called Blades of Glory? Yes. It's about like a figure skater or something? Yes. It's Will Ferrell figure skating. So your answer is no. I, I guess we have our answer. <laughs> 
Oh, and we forgot to mention most deaf and Elvis Costello. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. What were those cameos doing in there? It was almost as if they were just hanging around the set that day and decided they wanted to be in the movie. I think that was just supposed to indicate that Jean Girard was, was so unbelievably cool that most deaf and Elvis Costello <laughs> just sort of calmly sit around his patio for no reason. We were disappointed that they mentioned that it was most deaf and Elvis Costello. It would have been about 18 times funnier if they had just been sitting there at his estate and if, they hadn't identified them at all. If they just never identified there's a, and unfortunately, Ricky Bobby right after says, hey, was that most deaf and Elvis Costello? If he just hadn't said anything, I, would, I think it would have been hilariously funny. Yeah, you're right. The idea that he's such a sophisticate that that's just sort of, that's his lunch guest. <laughs> that's his every life. Day. I guess that does it for this spoiler special. Thanks a lot for joining me, Seth and Josh. Thank you, Dana. <laughs> Thanks, Dana. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.